Hello, and welcome to Create, Connect, Communicate, the EMG podcast. My name is Michelle Ponto, and I'm the content strategist here at EMG. Today, our podcast topic is data-driven PR, and with me on the podcast is Shiona Lin. Shioni is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations and the Public Relations and Communications Association, which is where I first came across her and her expertise. What is her expertise, you might ask? Well, Shioni is an applied behavioral scientist and industry expert in data-driven strategic communications, which is also the backbone of her award-winning agency, LinPR. Welcome to our podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. Really excited. In today's world, AI and big data aren't just buzzwords, but have become a big part of our lives and a big part of how we communicate. It's also advancing the field of data-driven PR communication. So before we get into the PR side of things, maybe you can tell me how data is changing the way we communicate and how we do marketing. Yeah, I think most importantly, the way we access data is changing and that brings a lot of opportunity for us as communicators. So previously, when we were reliant on primary research or studies by other colleagues and departments to give us some of those insights, a lot of that information is now publicly available via social media platforms, via email marketing tools, via a host of other platforms, which will give you this anonymized data for you to interpret and identify trends, uh, decipher how your audience is reacting to your content and communications. The, the way it's changing, the way we do content marketing is, it's giving us a real understanding of what works and what doesn't. And I think that's really important because we tend to often focus quite heavily on what works but ignore what doesn't and there's a lot to be learned from things that don't work uh, and a lot to be learned from analyzing why something hasn't worked so at LinPR when we look at we're data-driven everything all campaigns are informed by data insights or strategies are informed by data we focus quite a lot in understanding why something doesn't work and really trying to make some connections between our hypotheses versus what we're seeing out there in the real world how audiences are reacting so i think it goes back to using the data that's available to you at very low to no cost and using that to inform your campaigns to inform your communication strategies and it's so much easier to measure and report on outcomes so it almost is helping us communicate better. Absolutely. I suppose if you're working in a non-data-driven way where you're relying primarily on instinct or opinion, it's a bit like walking around in the dark because you're hoping something will land. You're hoping something will stick. What data does is takes that fear, and there is fear, right? Because if you aren't informed by data, you're not sure whether it's going to land. You've just got your fingers crossed. And it takes that uncertainty away and it lets communicators have that confidence. Limpia, we are confident of approaches. We know we will deliver results because we optimize the methodologies available to us, the tools available to us to ensure that we are communicating in a much more agile way than traditional PR and comms. Okay. One of the things I was seeing that your agency does is behavioral change campaigns. What are these what are these campaigns and how are they different from traditional marketing campaigns? They are very different from traditional marketing campaign in some ways and not so different in other ways. So basically a behavioral science approach is using a suite of tactics from psychology and decision science broadly to predict how people might behave in a certain scenario or situation or to a campaign, what might get in the way and propose solutions based on existing literature or primary research, et cetera, to overcome those obstacles and that 
barriers. And it's really vital as part of that approach to be testing, you know, again, going back to the data driven methodology is to be testing those ideas and solutions with the target audience to see whether it lands or not. I think instinctively, as communicators, we apply a lot of behavioral science tactics in our work, we just don't know we're doing it. So for example, if you decide in your piece of content, you're a content strategist, Michelle, that you decide to put a piece, a sentence in bold, that is a behavioral science tactic to make something more salient. But you wouldn't necessarily, if you aren't a, a base eye practitioner, an applied base eye practitioner, you wouldn't know that that particular effort from your part might have a significant impact on how your audience is reading that piece of content. And I think the approach that we have at Lenpia is academics. I am not a psychologist, I have to make that very clear. I'm an applied behavioral science practitioner. I am self-taught, but I do invest in my CPD to ensure that I'm reading the latest literature that is available to me within the context of where I'm working and that my the unit that we work with, we have a behavioral science unit and that's made up of academic behavioral scientists. So we are pulling in that academic expertise to inform the way we communicate and create campaigns. And I think where, again, our point of difference is that we are, due to my applied behavioral science uh, position, we are able to quite beautifully fuse academia with practice. And so our campaigns that sometimes there's a, it might be a bit difficult if you're not a behavioral science communicator, it might be difficult to understand the theory and then apply that into campaigns. And that's where we have managed to find something quite unique, I think. I think so too. It's very unique. Your team is also very unique. Usually when you're hiring a communicator, you're looking for different types of skills, not somebody who has a data background, somebody who has a PhD in in behavioral science, you're, you're looking for a, a different way of thinking. And you've tapped into this and have been able to bring it into the communications realm and not just in an academia, academia way, but in a way that is out there in the world publicly and you're seeing the results come back. I think that's really interesting. It's definitely a very exciting space to be as a practitioner. To be able to have that confidence, I think, in practice is really important. It goes back to that scientific approach of testing a hypothesis and then analyzing the, the data that comes back and trying to replicate it. It's a very scientific approach to communications, which is what makes it different. Do you think it's also really helps the way people communicate today? Because we do so many things through digital, through mobile, through online things that are enabling you to get all these different types of data that probably wasn't available 50 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 100% where we are now, we are hugely reliant on digital because that's where we are getting that quantitative insight back. But we also use qualitative um, and mixed methodology to ensure that it's a rounded approach. Where if you look at behavioral science in emerging fields, but you can trace it back all the way to the 18th century and um, Adam Smith, who was talking about things like a loss aversion, overconfidence, self-control, all important theories today, right here and now. So yes, absolutely. I think the access does help. But again, if you go back to the 80s and you see car salesmen selling, they were using behavioral science tactics. The entire book, Influence, is all about that. Uh, Robert Cialdini is all about how behavioral science is used in sectors like sales and sectors like marketing for many, many years. But people just hadn't quite defined it the way it's being defined. I think that's interesting because I was going to ask about where the emotional side comes in. But it looks like some people must have had this naturally, especially if they were in sales, to understand how to apply these things. And now you have the proof to show that it works. Yeah, we as species have been nudging each other as long as we've existed, right? We are constantly persuading and influencing people around us, whether it's getting my husband to actually cook dinner or, you know, we're always influencing without realizing that we're doing it. It's just an awareness 
of how that influence happens, how our brain processes information, how it retrieves information, how it retrieves, how it feels, how it uh, makes an emotional connection. It's understanding all of that and levering it. So the communications you put forward is the most salient, the most attractive, and the most, the one that will convert the quickest. So that is basically, it's taking all of that and having an awareness of how to deploy it. That kind of brings me into my next question because you mentioned the word nudge. And I saw uh, again on your website, I was looking the things up before I talked to you. You talk a little bit about nudge theory. What is this? How does it work? And why does it work? Mm. So there's a lot of confusion about nudge theory. It's really important to be clear that nudge approaches is all about avoiding closing down choices. So it's about creating an environment where we can guide and we can encourage, but never with mandating, never with enforcing. So there's always this fear that, you know, it's propaganda. You're nudging people to make evil choices. The reality is you can, because science is in the hands of the practitioner or the scientist, right? But it is a decision and an ethical decision for communicators to ensure that we nudge for good. Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, they both wrote the book Nudge that sort of popularized this entire approach many years ago, and they're coming out with a second uh, edition of their book, which is called The Final Version. But he's Richard Science's book saying Nudge for Good, and it's really important we remember that. But going back to sort of nudge theory and sort of why and how it works, that original de definition to Thaler and Sunstein's Original definition of nudge was any aspect of the choice architecture. So again, being that decision-making environment that alters people's behaviors in predictable ways without forbidding any options, essentially. So to count as a nudge, the intervention that or the solution that we propose must be cheap and must be easy. So it's rooted a lot in heuristics and biases study. So the way we think, the way we process information, the mental shortcuts we take to uh, make our decisions and sort of understanding how that influences how we see something, how we interact with it and whether we decide to give it our time or attention. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So it's definitely not something to manipulate people, but it almost helps them. You're helping them with the processing the information or giving I mean, it to a way that makes sense to them. Absolutely. To them. I mean, if you think about a website and in that website, if you want your audience to click on a particular call to action. So I'm going to give you a great example. So we are doing work with ROSPA, which is the Royal Society for Prevention of Accidents. And we've just done a pioneering piece of behavioral science research in England to try and uh, get more people to access ad advanced motorcycle training that can save that can essentially save lives. And not many people, well, 1% take this really life-saving training. So we did a big piece of research. We had great insights. And part of that was uh, us improving the choice architecture. So if the web page that ROSPA have, where they're asking motorcyclists to take their advanced uh, training, has lots and lots of calls to action, where does the audience look? So how do we ensure that the specific call to action around advanced training and, and do this, take this action, is made as salient as possible. And that is improving that choice architecture, that decision-making environment. So when, as a motorcyclist, I come upon ROSPA's webpage and it's telling me how this training will save my life, I know exactly where I'm going to take my next step. Okay, so that, that will help with a lot of people because there's, and not just on websites, because there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of things on, on social media. There's a lot of things that are in Google when you do a search. And if you are looking for a specific solution, when they end up on your client's page, whether it's on their social media page, whether it's on a press release, whether it's on their website, 
you're helping them with this path to go through you're nudging them into the right direction. nudging them into the path <laughs> there, you go. there you go but don't forget you can also have sludge ah. which is the opposite of nudge there can be two types of sludge so this is a very emerging new field of research which is very exciting and it's exactly the opposite of nudge so nudges about making choices easier sludges where choices are harder and the action is harder to take. And sometimes it can be unintentional. So bureaucracy is a great example. If you've got government processes, that's very difficult to navigate because of policy and it's very tricky to get filled with friction, as we call it. That's an unintended sludge. But it can be intended. An intended sludge is uh, a lot of private companies do this where they will make it really hard for you to cancel a gym membership. You know, you can't quickly do that. You give in then to what we call status quo bias, inertia. But you know, it's too much hassle. It's only five quid out of my account every month. That's fine. I'm not going to bother. So you're paying for a service that you're never using just because you can't be bothered to deal with the friction of trying to get out of that service. And that is intentional sludge and that is evil. That is evil. <laughs> so your company doesn't do that. That's for good. <laughs> mm. That's okay. I lose out on the money. It's fine. You sleep at night. <laughs> you sleep at night. That's more important. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, um, before when I was talking to you before we started the podcast that you're seeing a growth actually in the people who are looking for this, this data-driven insights into doing their, their PR and their communications. Why do you think this is growing now? Why do you think people are suddenly interested in learning how to do this or having campaigns that around this? I'll talk about behavioral science. I think that was very much amplified by the pandemic. Behavioral science globally has been um, central to how countries have responded to the crisis and will also, and it's going to help recovery. So I think across the world, people have seen how behavioral science has had such a tangible impact on getting people to adopt these new behaviors. I mean, in 2019, if you told a behavioral scientist, you get the Western world wearing masks, they'd probably be laughing at you because, you know, that sounds crazy at that time, getting the Western world to wear masks. And now here we are wearing masks and we've shown that we can, as a species, we have the ability to change our behaviors at pace. And I think a lot of organizations have seen how behavioral science has informed that behavior change journey. It's been a very visual example to a lot of organizations. And they've realized that actually this can um, support my organizations may not be working in public health, yet they can see how that would transfer through to, to their piece of work. So there has been, we have seen certainly at Olympia where we have scaled in pandemic, we have seen emerging interest in, and really uh, quickly growing interest in research-driven comms and behavioral science, obviously, um, communications, every single piece of work we do has a research and insights phase. We do not activate without research and insights. And every single client we work with accepts that. So when people ask me, you know, how do you convince your clients to pay for research? Well, the thing is, they're seeing the impact that first phase has such a huge impact on activation and outcomes. You know, Free Your Mind, one of the campaigns that we ran in the face of lockdown one in the UK, we ran a mental health campaign for our client NHS Southeast London CCG to tackle mental ill health um, and to point Southeast London residents to the, the relevant resources and help them spot the signs of mental ill health early or know when to access specialist support. We spent uh, a good few weeks, this was a crisis piece of work, right? We had to activate then. 
But we spent a, a good few weeks in really understanding the problem, understanding why people might not access that mental health service, what might get in the way, and coming up with the solutions, which we then tested over two weeks. And that campaign is definitely the most successful campaign that my client has run, but also one of the most successful mental health campaigns in the UK. And that's been confirmed by many NHS teams in the UK to us. It's gone on to win awards. It's gone on to be shortlisted in global awards. And we've just about to wrap up phase two for that, uh, which we just completed for a client. So again, shows that even in a crisis situation, you can embrace a research and data-led approach, a tested approach to activate a campaign. End to end, that was 12 weeks we did it in. Wow, that was really fast. Very fast. I think you're right with how agile we need to be because even things that worked last year for a consumer, things have changed. People see things differently. They're consuming their own information quickly, which is changing their, their behavior online. So I think that the, the constant research that you do is going to be even more important as we go forward. Absolutely. And, and the thing about human behavior is that we might behave in a certain way now doesn't mean we're going to behave in that same way tomorrow. And it's all about context. So being agile and having that flexibility to be responsive to when behaviors change and reactions change is, is critical. When we run a campaign, we are monitoring in real time to understand how things are landing, because if something doesn't work, we switch it. And that is what makes that is again going back to your data-driven methodology because we're using the data to tell us whether something's working or not but that is what makes campaigns a success do you find this might change very on the uh, depending on the type of campaign for example the two you mentioned had to do with with health and right now we're in elevated health situations where other things might be uh, moving a little bit less at a less higher pace so do you find that behavior will be different depending on the type of industry or the type of campaign that you're running? Behavior will be depend different depending on so many factors. I mean, what works for that mental health campaign in London may not work in Scotland, for example. Human beings are all about context. You know, my experiences of here and now is what's going to define the way I see a piece of content, react to it and take action. So Yes, public health people are in a heightened state to about the health, but even then we're seeing there's a mental health crisis where people aren't accessing the services they need to improve their mental health. So it isn't as, as black and white as that. But equally, we run that behavioral science research, as I mentioned for ROSPA, on motorcycling. Now, no one's motorcycling with a pandemic, right? It's all cooked up. But that piece of work we did, we ran six trials and the response was phenomenal. We generated engagement rates that were, I think, between 30 and 90 times higher than um, industry average for not-for-profits. So we had significant response engagement to a concept where people weren't riding their bikes. We were running, in a sense, a motorcycling campaign during lockdown, which is crazy. And it still worked and still gave us those insights. So no, it's about understanding the context. It's about understanding the exact behaviors you're trying to promote and then analyzing the barriers and then just activating in a very scientific manner. You know, let's do this. And if this doesn't happen, then we're going to go on to this step. So it's a, yes, it's very different to traditional PR methodology. I do think though, in integrated campaigns where that data isn't as e easily accessible, if it's just a non-digital solution that is harder uh, because you're not getting the data back to inform the campaign as quickly as a digital campaign however there are ways of still gathering the data still running trials which are not 
based on digital methodology um, to inform events and activities. I have one more question for you. This is a growing field. People are really interested in it. Where do you see this going in the future? I, I hope it goes far and I hope more practitioners embrace this and realize the absolute weapon they have. And I use the web weapon because, you know, we are, we are constantly under pressure as communicators, especially in the public sector. We're constantly under pressure to deliver, deliver, deliver. Maybe weapon is the wrong word, tool. Let's go with tool. It is a great tool in your toolbox, right? Because it gives you so much information and insights to make these informed strategies and decisions and have the confidence to stand up to your senior leaders to say, this is why we've done it, or this is why we haven't done it. So I think organizations will value data-driven communications as this goes ahead, because obviously the pandemic has impacted how people view behavioral science as a tactic in communications. The majority of businesses have lost revenue or costs or something or the other. They will be looking to recoup and, and thinking about the bottom line. So it's really important as communicators that we understand how our campaigns match up to bottom line. And the more we can articulate that with numbers and hard outcomes, the more uh, credible we are in our organizations. And I think organizations that embrace behavioral science in communications will reap huge rewards because they will have better, richer relationships with their audiences because they're, they're providing their audiences the most relevant information and the, the best ways of taking action. They will have, as I said, clearer user journeys, which will hopefully result in better conversions, whether that is to access a service or to buy a product. Um, and ultimately, they will have a much more effective marketing spend because you're not throwing money at something without knowing whether it works or not. Well, I'm really loving the way data and communications are coming together. I think you're, you're leading a really innovative trend here. <laughs> I hope so. It's just, I find it takes the stress away from being a communicator, if that's even possible, because there, there's so much to fall back on and, and rely. It takes that sort of, again, being blind in a dark room, right? Would I rather be blind or would I take out my torch and shine the light? It's a no-brainer. Oh, that makes sense. Well, we're running out of time today, but if you want to learn more about data-driven PR, follow Shiani on LinkedIn or give us a call at EMG and we'll connect you with her, or maybe we'll do something together with her team and our team. There's so many different possibilities as she's mentioned. And Shiani, thank you for joining us today. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I love talking about all things data and behavioral science. An absolute pleasure. And for those of you listening, don't forget to tune in again next month for another exciting Create, Connect, Communicate podcast. Have a great day.